everyone. Welcome to Zion Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Uh, this is a podcast exploring the connections between anime and Canadian media. And today we're looking at a movie that uh, intersects between those two things. Uh, it's based on a manga. And even though it has no key creatives uh, behind it who were actually Canadian, at least none who were credited, uh, and it never got a proper theatrical release here, and it wasn't available in the U.S. at all until recently, uh, and it's still not available in Canada in any form whatsoever. But the important thing is that this movie is based on a manga by Kazuo Koike and Ryuichi Ikigami, and it has a scene where an explosion takes place in front of the old downtown Eaton's in Vancouver. So we have to talk about it. It is the 1995 Crying Freeman movie, and uh, joining me to discuss this great film, I'd like to welcome back to the show from the Anime World Order podcast, Daryl Surratt. Daryl, thanks for coming back on. Great to be back on, Jesse. It's been a while, uh, but just as a quick correction, I believe this movie is not available legally in the United States in any way, shape, or form to this day. I mean, there was a brief period where it was streaming, and I think even that window is closed. It's never been released mm -hmm. on any home media. It never came out in the theaters. It would occasionally play on cable, pay cable. Oh, it was on cable, so that's that's a greater availability than I thought um, up until... Yeah, like back yeah. in the days when like there was Cinemax and Showtime and stuff like that, I think it would occasionally show there, because I think that's how I first saw it. Yeah, you can't get the Blu-ray. You can't get the, the 1080p like, streaming. They can't get that three-disc set. All that stuff is import only. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, and there's no, no Canadian release. I thought King Charles was finally going to fix stuff like that when he uh, when he took the throne, but we're we're still waiting on that. So it's it's not available despite having Canadian funding. Also joining us today from the Anime World Order podcast, uh, I'd like to welcome onto the show for the first time Gerald Rathgold. Uh, Gerald, okay. thanks for hey, coming. Hey, my first time here. Thanks for yeah. having me. I know I know you have a certain passion for anime manga adaptations uh, featuring Mark DeCascos. Uh, so yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, at least in this one, unlike the Saint Seiya movie, which uh, you guys talked about on your show recently. Well, he was certainly the best part of the Saint Seiya movie, which is not exactly saying a whole lot. But yeah, this is a this is quite a thing. I, I, I'm glad we're talking about it. There, there's certainly a lot to say yeah. about about Crying Freeman. It's it's interesting because this came out like one year after the anime had just ended. Yeah, the anime and was like a the long, anime OVA project. Yeah, and the anime OVA started right after the manga ended as well. Um, so you know you have that kind of kind of progression there. The sense of crying Freeman moving on to greater things, whether that's really accurate is, is maybe questionable. But actually, the first thing I wanted to talk about was how everyone first kind of discovered this movie, your background with it is, or with crying Freeman in general. Uh, Daryl, you kind of already uh, already started on that. So you you said you originally saw this movie through cable, like 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 I assume like HBO or uh, wherever it was playing at the time. I think that's accurate. Yeah. I mean, again, they were talking about a film from about thirty years ago, nearly, and so it everything kind of bleeds together after a point. But certainly, Crying Freeman was something that at the time being a fan of anime in the 1990s, people would generally be in some way aware of it because let's say if you rented a Streamline Pictures tape in their trailer, they'd always have shots of Crying Freeman, you know, what they could show at least, you know, on a general trailer of it. Mm -hmm. And 
typically if you'd go to a video store and they had crying freeman you had to present id to be able to rent it oddly enough you would generally not have to present id to rent movies like live action films i think they were just really scared about people getting the wrong cartoons and so i either rented it from a video store or more likely my recollection was i saw it on cable uh crying freeman as a comic book was obviously a sort of popular infamous thing at the same time because viz was releasing that in english in the united states they were doing it in the traditional american comic book style where rather than the modern way we know about reading manga and the collected volumes you'd get it one floppy issue at a time that full-size page sort of stuff i never read crying freeman that way i would wait for it to come out in the the trades and what they would do was they didn't want, say, like volume one, volume two, because volume three, because they didn't want people to not just pick up a book. They'd give each story like a title of its own, like a little subtitle, like Portrait of a Killer or something to yeah, that effect. They wanted people to be able to, or people in the normal comic graphic novel market to be able to jump in uh, with any particular book. Yeah. Which doesn't work for this because. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little iffy logic, but yeah. when does that ever stop them? The thing about the '90s though was that Ryoichi Kigami's artwork was particularly conducive to this sort of Western appeal because his art style is very almost hyper realistic. I would say it's not really. It's like Otomo. It's very Otomo like as well. Like it doesn't. It, there's no like stereotype like we I, I really hate when people say like the anime look yeah. or the manga look because they're yeah like how one. to draw manga style like that doesn't exist but people associate the jump shueisha in-house sort of stylistic uh, similarities as being what all anime manga look like and ikigami has always sort of been the poster child of look things can look very different because ikigami has this very like strong adherence to like anatomy and physiology and also like very photorealistic, like referenced oftentimes backgrounds, a lot of detail. And so people would look to his work, like say crying Freeman or sanctuary or my, the psychic girl and say, you know what, this can transcend to reach Western audiences. And to the point of what we're talking about here, this can readily be imagined as something occurring in live action because the art style is so grounded in realism. He's very influenced by, I guess, what you call the old Gekiga style, uh, which is what they called adult manga before, back when there was some kind of meaningful distinction. Seinen magazines always have a, a title or two that, that sort of call back to that, even though it's all, a lot of it is, it, it's not representative of that, yeah. Ikigami's style is very sort of standard, like, Seinen style. Yeah. Um, it's, you oh, know, well, Seinen is also is a very, probably the Very broad. It's very, it's very broad, especially wanna, now. Like I would say, I would say a very standard like business jump style, maybe might might be more accurate because yeah, uh, unfortunately, like, saying, a business jump no longer exists. But I understand it was a publication that like was the stereotypical embodiment of the uh, salarymen reading comics on the train, where there's a lot of uh, sex and violence and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Although business also, jump was more on the violence sa- salaryman power but, fantasy stories. Also, yeah. the the thing with Crying Freeman, and I saw like my my history with crying freeman is i i believe i rented the first tape um a long time ago and the thing with crying freeman is if you take that first that that for those first like story or two or the first volume 
or this movie completely by itself, no other part of Crying Freeman. Like, <laughs> it seems like a very adult thriller. Yeah. Um, this is a, like, it's a very, like, something like, I don't know, Basic Instinct or some sort of, like, some sort of very, like, thriller thing, sort of thing that you would see adults enjoying in on in movies in the 80s and 90s um any anywhere outside of that like if you go further into the manga it gets into utter insanity and also with ryoichi ikigami's work and kazuo koike's work um this is the one that is the most respectable for the longest time (laughs) (laughs) it it holds itself Um, together just long enough to sort of play out its initial premise you didn't uh, a think little sanctuary bit. was respectable, Gerald. <laughs> well, sanctuary. Well, sanctuary was not going to translate well to, uh, you know, uh, this the story about the yakuza and stuff. I don't think was going to translate as well. Um, you know, not, not without Sean Connery there uh, to tell them how to do it right. Well, but, this is um, this is what I wanted to say is... about Ikigami's style. It has this very sort of hard boiled, almost kind of distinguished look to it, but. The stories that he's usually uh, drawing, and they're all—they're almost always written. No, they're always written by other people, but they're—they're they're usually just like batshit insane or goofy as shit or something like that. Yeah, I, I recommend yeah. if you can track down his Spider-Man. Manga. Yeah, his—that's that, yep. one of his earliest work was the Spider-Man. Um, yeah, manga because from the seventies. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is when I saw this, and you know, oh, I you know, you see, like Kazuo Koike wrote this, and Ryuichi Kagami did this. And then you put together, like, as you get older, like, oh, he also, uh, Koike also did, um, like, Lone Wolf and Cub. You, you think of Koike initially as some sort of very distinguished writer, a very highbrow entertainment. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, no, these, those are just the things we got here because those were the exceptions, because those were the acceptable ones. The things, like, offered and God's pornographic films and the, well, well the, that that's a uh, wounded man, Gerald. It's uh, not God's pornographic X-rated <laughs> films. It's Look, the title. I, that, that is that is the title that it is in my mind. No, wounded man and offered, and the insanity that those like delve into. Well, you remember remember Gerald, Koike and Ikigami worked together since the seventies. Yes, uh, not just on things like uh, AIOU Boy. Uh, but they also did the Incredible Hulk manga. So imagine Kazuo <laughs> Koike writing the Hulk. Oh, I haven't I, heard of this one. I've I've uh, not seen that one. Yeah, I, I have seen some of the Spider-Man manga. Yeah, and I mean, even this, they like, like while this movie is actually like very accurate to the original work, they still you know backed off quite a bit. Like, I'm sure like Christoph Gons was like, okay, I don't think we can have like the boxing ring blowjob scene where the entire like crew is jacking off while watching them. But that didn't that... happen in this first volume. No, that's what I mean. Is that, I mean, they, know... they could have worked it in somehow. <laughs> they could have worked in elements from those later arcs into this movie. Had they so chosen, there was a little extra time. Yeah. Remember, this is the directorial debut of Christoph Gans. Well, the right. theatrical the first... di- directorial. Yeah. Did, I guess he... he'd done like a short film or something. Sure. Like that, he did but, some, uh... some direct to video stuff before this. As yeah. Well, not, nowadays, so. Christoph Gans is best known for his, um, ad- adaptations of si- silent Hill, yeah. uh, which are generally <laughs> kind of not very well regarded as being particularly faithful 
to the source material because, you know, people want to see that pyramid head or whatever. Gerald, um, just back to your own experience for this film um, specifically, uh, I'm just curious, when did you first see it? Did you actually catch it on TV or video or did you have to pirate it? I absolutely saw this on TV. Okay. Um, Yeah. Sometime in the 90s, this feels like I would have seen this like Cinemax or something like this feels like something that would have been like 10 p.m. on Cinemax. Not not like the midnight Cinemax movie, which is what we all waited for. Um, But this feels like something I would have seen around then, Um, because I know that that's that's sort of when I saw the the Fist of the North Star movie. Yeah, um, as well of. Similar vein. Yeah, because um, I know that the narrative with the fr- the crying Freeman, crying Freeman movie, is that it's just something that was just completely unavailable in North America until the very brief s- streaming window came up um, on yeah, Amazon Prime a while back. Yeah. But it it seems that that's not so much the case. I think it it may have gotten like a, a small art house run in Canada. I actually wasn't able to confirm that. I imagine if the film got Canadian funding, it probably played in at least one theater here. But it sounds like it actually, you know, emerged on h- higher tier cable stations the same way that things like, you know, the Fist of the North Star movie did and a lot of a lot of comparable things in the in the mid nineties did in the States. This feels kind of like the old one of the very, very like made in English but released in Europe sort of movies? Well, it is a co-production between uh, Japan and I believe also Canada, obviously, if you can't tell. Possibly (laughs) uh, also France. It's not considered an American film by any stretch of the imagination. No, there's no no American money. No Hollywood sensibility. They were not able to get a Canadian, or sorry, they were not able to get an American distributor involved in the film. They were trying to. Uh, and that's why the bu- big reason why the budget was so low and was cut while they were producing it. But they couldn't get any involvement from an American distributor. Uh, pr- pretty much the only American involvement was some of the actors, or most of the actors, actually. Yeah, I would say yeah. most of the actors of note are not Canadian. Some of them are super Canadian, and you know they did workarounds for that. But because of the co-production nature of it, there are a lot of Asian and you know specifically Japanese actors in the picture, some of whom, you know, seems like they don't really speak English particularly well. Uh, this is a, another sort of similarity that the Fist of the North Star movie had where they, as part of the terms and conditions, like you have to cast this actress and it's like, she doesn't really speak English. Oh, she'll do her lines phonetically or <laughs> I, I, that sort of stuff. In this case, you know, at least um, at least two of the actors had to be dubbed over entirely. I, in their yeah, dialogue. and it's I didn't know that or realize it when I watched the film the first time. Um, but when I learned that and then watched it prepare for this podcast, it really sticks out. <laughs> it sticks out when you know, but yeah, I uh, p- personally uh, with this movie, I, I, I have never saw it through any legal channel. It was, I imagine it was probably running on super channel or some, um, some cable tier here at some point. Uh, but I've only, I've only seen it through piracy. Uh, there's no Blu-ray here. You have to, import it from i think france and germany uh, are the only ones who have had a proper home video release and if you import it here you have to have a region free blu-ray player in order to watch it as you know as we all should have um which is, in, in which this, is weird because yeah. you would think this would be a movie that certainly in 1995 would have you know appeal to be like 
this seems like something that would have done reasonably well in theaters. Well, I think in, in VHS, there's a possibility that it may have been rented out because I do know mm-hmm. when I would go to, say, a Hong Kong supermarket and they would hand Hong Kong tapes for rent, they actually had the Hong Kong uh, live action Crying Freeman that was made several years prior to this one. Yeah. It wasn't called Crying Freeman. It was called something like uh, Dragon from Russia or something like that. But still the same plot. They just changed the names up. Just very common practice back then. And they may have actually had, you know, this English language crying Freeman there alongside it. Yeah, this this really seems like something. In fact, I think I may have seen a little bit of this in my early anime community days where people would talk about this movie, about how good it was, and they would do so knowing that you can't see it easily. This is like, oh, that we call that the call that the Zeta Gundam. Yeah, we call that the Zeta Gundam movie. Yeah. Yeah. Call yeah. it the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life, and you can't see it. Well, I, I don't know where everyone stands on uh, on Zeta Gundam. Uh, I think it certainly did not live up to the um, the years and years of hype. Um, Crying Freeman, I think, holds up pretty well. And that's actually what I, I wanted to know. Where, where do you guys stand on just the general quality of this movie? We just did a panel, actually, all about the um, various live Western live-action adaptations of anime, and we held up Crying Freeman as an example of one of the better ones. Yeah, I think that this is a uh, not even taken in isolation, like even taken with its original material. I think this movie is pretty darn good. Yeah, um, shockingly faithful to the source material. A lot of respect was kept for mm-hmm. retaining, you know, here's what happened on the page. And now let's actually realize that. And that was not like an unknown thing. If you were like reading reviews, they would say because – you watch this movie, and it's very bold and up front in the credits. This is at, adapted from a comic book. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, Christoph Gans is a uh, – you can say whatever you want about some of his movies, but he's got a great eye for production design and um, sort of – I think he's got a uh, – obviously, the, like he was working on a very, very slim budget on this movie. Certainly did his best to make Vancouver – you know, double for A, Vancouver, and B, like, Shanghai? And Japan also. And, and Hokkaido. And, I think that's a go out to, like, other and parts San of Francisco British Columbia. And New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I Vancouver mean, it's... always doubles for New York City anyway and yeah. countless other productions. But, yeah, this whole thing is filmed in British Columbia, and it's supposedly, like, this globe-trotting affair. Yeah. And openly, yes, it is one of the very few movies openly set in Vancouver, which is funny because one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels, which – no longer post anymore. Um, every frame of painting. Um, the guy there is from Vancouver, mm-hmm. and one of his videos was Vancouver, like never is Vancouver. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, well, that is a that is a change from the original source material to have it yes. take place largely in Vancouver. Like if you read the source material, which is readily available now, Dark Horse Comics has kept Crying Freeman in print, and it's uh, still in print, both in print and as well as digital. Yeah, the digital is yeah. quite cheap too so you can pick yeah this, very I think affordable you can pick volume up for just a yeah. few dollars yeah but in that japan. comic yeah. it mostly takes place within japan and within china but in the case of this one they have that initial portion of it just explicitly we're just gonna say it's vancouver yep yeah and how that, much of a yakuza presence is in vancouver jesse i think more than people would expect but less than this movie implies uh <laughs> that's that i think that's that's what i'm 
kind of, kind of thinking there. Yeah, like the notion of yeah. there's like tens of thousands of Yakuza soldiers ready to go to war <laughs> here in Vancouver <laughs> uh, is sort of uh, a bit of a stretch. When you realize that, okay, in the original it was, you know, Tokyo, um, then it's like, okay, maybe it makes a little more sense from a fantasy standpoint. Yeah. The fact that Vancouver actually plays Vancouver in this movie is, is something that I particularly love about it. Um, even though it makes some some weird decisions, like the um, the Vancouver City Hall that they present near the beginning of the film, it is not Vancouver City Hall; it's the Vancouver Art Gallery playing Vancouver City Hall. So it's still not you, you still have that uh, that effect of landmarks being used for things that they're not. Even though we know are they them. just going all over the city from shot to shot, like Jared no, points out, and we no, they're the not. Too. It is quite centered in downtown Vancouver for that uh, that that early set piece. So it's kind of like Michael Bay Bad Boys 2 where it's like it's set in Miami and it's blocked out to be like this is actually like traveling to place to place in Miami. Yeah, yeah, no, even though they they make that one changed, it's it, it's quite geographically accurate. Like if you're from Vancouver, you'll see that you'll know where they're going. You'll know where, where, where the sniper action is coming from, where they're shooting down to. It's it's pretty accurate. And I was reading that they moved production to Vancouver for this movie thinking that it was going to be cheaper and it turned out that it didn't actually save them very much money. Moved it to Vancouver from from where? Or sorry, not moved it. They decided to shoot in Vancouver uh, okay. because they thought it, it was, would be yeah. inexpensive, and it, they probably did save money doing that. And obviously, featuring Vancouver and saying it's Vancouver would qualify them for certain tax credits, uh, perhaps also, more so than before. Uh, but I think that in doing so, even though they didn't get the benefits that they hoped for, it really feels like they. Uh, leaned in. I think they just found shooting in Vancouver to be very novel, uh, and they really leaned into that, uh, which is m- maybe maybe why it was handled the way that it was in in this movie. That's my well, guess. That's, I, I that's the impression that he, I get. I think you know, reading the 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 work that you know they had these, if they wanted to have outside shots in Tokyo, like I'm sure Vancouver can double for a Vancouver obviously doubles for a lot of places around the world. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wouldn't be as convincing a Tokyo. No, I mean there's I there's the uh, the yakuza funeral scene, um, and just looking at that, it's just like oh they couldn't even like they're they're driving on like they're driving on the the left side of the car, uh, and you, right. can, you can just it it falls apart pretty quickly when you're when you're looking for it. I don't think I, I don't mean, think you could places, pull Vancouver off as Tokyo very well. Most of the places that are set in quote unquote like Shanghai and and Japan in this movie are all either indoors or they are in like a forest. I guess there's like a Buddhist temple somewhere in Vancouver where they shot this. They built that temple specifically uh, for this movie. Um, Uh, I don't think they were even that far out of the city when they did it, Uh, but it's supposed to be in Hokkaido. It, you'd think that they would have at least gotten in a step, like the overhead helicopter shot. They would have gotten Hokkaido for that, but it's not, it is like very clearly, British Columbia, <laughs> when you see all so, those trees, it's like, yeah. So I laughed when, it, like, when the screen it, says it, it, Hokkaido. It's like, no, that is not, that's not Hokkaido. <laughs> so it's kind of like when I watch Weekend at Bernie's and then they're in like the forest and I'm like, okay, if you turn the camera right around, there's a highway right behind them. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, it, that... it was very, uh, it, it, it was very efficient filmmaking, I thought, for a movie like this it was like, and you uh, appreciate that as you're watching it because you like you don't get the impression like this movie i think it was like budgeted at something like 12 to 15 million and they wound up doing it for 
Um, I would say just, just a little more than dollars. the room cost, uh, like under under ten million. Um, well, remember the room? He bought all of that equipment. Yeah. that movie should have cost like two million dollars. I'm not saying that's what the room should have cost, but <laughs> um, well, in this case, it certainly at least feels like a mid-budget action film of the time, which used to be fairly commonplace. You yeah. know, there's some decent makeup effects in here. There's some good, um, you know, some, blood work, explosions. You some know, really good explosions, effects. I think. Yeah, I yeah. think, oh, like, it doesn't look like a ultra-cheap, like, zero-budget film. I think just nowadays in 2023, it's just such a, a gap. Like, you either have movies that cost $300 million, like, you know, a third of a billion dollars to make, or things that are made on, like, the absolute basis, like, shoestring. Yeah. And when it comes to action... You know, you need a little more to do at least a, a decent, you know, action film that's not just pure martial arts or what have you. And so this was a film of that era where you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I miss those movies a lot. I know. Like the 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 mid budget film is just it's gone. And th- this type of movie is what used to occupy that space. So it's it's really going back and watching it now. It's like you really get a sense of something that we've lost. And also crying Freeman. It also has like a little bit of an art house sheen to it. Uh that that kind of that kind of This was kind of cutting edge through. in yeah. some ways because remember in nineteen ninety five people were still like starting to tape trade these Hong Kong action movies. It's like, hey, have you heard about this guy John Woo and you know, stuff like that. There's a lot of like stylistic flares in this that were not common in the Hollywood action pictures of the era. Though there are certainly times, especially at the end, where it just almost feels like it turns into like straight up Mark Lester Commando style, just like standing out in the middle of the open, firing a gun, you know, things exploding, people doing front flips, uh, that kind of action. So you kind of get all of it in in here. Yeah, we were we were talking a bit about the director Christoph Gans, and he would go on to direct the Silent Hill movie, and he he is apparently doing the new Silent Hill movie. Uh, that's coming out in the next couple of years. I would say, Did they not see but, the old one? Yeah, like that's just it. I would say the, the <laughs> movies of Christoph Gans that were the best was this one, Crying Freeman, and then the one he made afterwards, Brotherhood, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Wolf. Which Brotherhood... I think it might be his best one overall. Also Mark Dacascos because, you know, he liked working with him here. And I think that one is like, came out right at that time where like it was this confluence of like anime is cool and you know hong kong martial arts action is cool and just monsters and just like a bunch of stuff like that and he put all that together well and that's probably how he got the job for silent hill but yeah i mean it's it's not i I mean i appreciate that they i mean they, they made some interesting changes in it for example and i'm i'm not a gun person i don't have a flipping clue about guns but the gun that Frank Crying Freeman originally had was a very small or sort of efficient revolver and just just kind of designed to do the job. Obviously, they thought about that and that wasn't good enough for this movie. They gave him like a hand cannon in this. Like, yeah, obviously, <laughs> well, obviously designed like, like this Wu is style, way, right? yeah, way over the top for killing someone. That's what you use for taking out a car. Um or like well, a it's helicopter. Also like or one <laughs> bullet just doesn't cut it in this style of film. Like in that heroic bloodshed era, it's like guys got to get shot like twenty times. <laughs> and a thirty-eight revolver, you know, a little harder for people to suspend the disbelief of you know you got to shoot like you know twenty people you know with this gun. Yeah. So uh, th- th- certainly the the Hong Kong movie influence from that, which again works for what they were doing with this. Um, I. 
again, like I think that uh, this is a it is unfortunate that we can't get this this movie easily. Yeah. And going back to Brotherhood of the Wolf, that is available now. It was reissued recently. In fact, there's a 4K Blu-ray out for that uh, right now. And I I remember when that movie came out, it was I think it may have been. It came out around the same time as Amelie, and I think those two movies are maybe the highest profile French language movies um, I can remember in my lifetime. It was it was a really big deal, and people were really talking about it, that. It was novel oh, that they'd released yeah. foreign language subtitled films at the time. Like they said, okay, we can get away with yeah. that for things like Hero and things like um, you know, yeah, Brother I, I, Iron Bull. Monkey. I saw. Yeah, Iron, yeah obviously, Crouching Tiger, and... Hidden Dragon was the one that really opened the the gates to people being receptive to that yeah. yeah unfortunately the weinsteins like we got it in chinese but we also got like 30 minutes cut from it yeah and when, i know when brotherhood of the wolf came out people you know you, you heard a bit about the director he's like this you know fantastic guy for cinematography he knows how to make a you know visually stunning movie um just with all this french sensibility and stuff and when i when silent hill came out you like they would talk about the director is this, this weird french guy who was obsessed with video games i don't think a lot of people realize that they were in fact the same director at that time um but unfortunately yeah it's it's too bad that he has not made very many movies since you know he, he gives such a great visual flair to to everything that he does but it, you know i guess he just got put into movie jail after silent hill I was actually looking to see like what he did. I guess he made like a French Beauty and the Beast movie yeah. in 2014, but that's you know that's eight years ago, yeah. and I don't know what he's done since then. And you know you can't go eight years without working, but he's got like some things coming up. So yeah, it's like he's doing more Silent Hill, but that last one was did people did not like that movie. So I don't know how that's how he's doing another one. Well, in any case, I think, um, you know, we should probably talk about what this film uh, is got going for it, what it's about. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I guess we haven't really summarized what Crying Freeman. Well, I guess there's there's what Crying Freeman, what the initial premise is and then what the comic becomes after that initial premise kind of. I would say all this, the initial premise is generally all that ever gets adapted into most other media. Obviously, the anime did <laughs> adapt the rest of it. Um, but again, they toned it way back. I think way, if you just way back, keep it yeah. to like what this movie is about, and that's like the closest of like, here's your story, here's the beginning, middle, and here's the end. It's it's essentially it's like a take on the Manchurian Candidate. A Potter is uh sees something that he shouldn't, or finds out something that he shouldn't, and he finds himself abducted by the uh, Chinese triad. The in the comic, it's the 108 dragons. In the movie, it's changed to the Sons of the Dragons. And he just becomes their hitman, uh, who is use hypnotic suggestion to basically carry out murders. And when he carries out the murders, he, he still has the emotion and regret and um, emerge just as a tear that he sheds. And he's supposed, and he carries out a murder in the film at San Francisco, uh, in, in the original I think it was. I think it was all in Tokyo in the in the original. It was all comedy. Japan. All yeah. Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, see, it's it's beautiful irony because it's called crying Freeman, but he is anything but free. <laughs> He's, he he desires his freedom, and so they give him that code name in the comics. But yeah, in this one, it's just like, okay, yeah, you're the Freeman. That's your code name. We just call everybody who we do this to the Freeman. Yeah, but but yeah, yeah like they they abduct him. They 
magically like hypnotize him into being a great killer. They tattoo a full body uh, dragon on him to say that he is, you know, one of their group. And then I guess he just makes for the, the perfect assassin because he's able to do these things and also be irresistible to women, which is never explicitly brought up in this film. But you can just see it as he's just doing mundane things like checking into customs. But in reality, <laughs> that's just Mark Dacascos in regular everyday life. I don't think there was really that part of the script. I think everyone was just so enamored by Mark Dacascos that it he ended was, up just uh... working out that way. Like it turns out that the, the lady who was the lead in this, he ended up marrying her. She divorced her husband right after um, filming this movie and then married Mark Dacascos four years later. <laughs> yeah, well, so, I, look, so that's the power of the Freeman. Yeah, that, yeah so look, look we, 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 had, we had talks about this, but um, yeah, Mark Speculation. Dacascos... Yes, that, uh, <laughs> but Mark Dacascos is definitely a piece in this. Holy crap, he is gorgeous if you're looking um, like mark Dacascos, you make sure make sure to get like these full body shots of my butt and you know my body because you know here's what i got ladies come get yeah. it well yeah there was the speculation we we had a big we had a deep question about the movie which was um whether mark Dacascos banged every woman on set <laughs> while he forced the husbands to watch and the director or just the husbands and uh we, we've been going back and forth on that it's uh, it's been a deep question I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Christoph Gans would have been into it. Yeah, yeah. I, it's one of those things like there are some changes from the original. Most of the major changes are they don't have a fully Asian cast. No. And so they change some of the last names to be not Asian last names. But, you know, generally they're still playing the same character. Um, and in addition, and I have no idea why this is the case, but. Uh, Ray Dong Chong, you know, Tommy Chong's daughter, as famously seen in the movie Commando. Um, she's in this movie for seemingly no reason. She, she's she, a is, cop. Can, she is Canadian. Uh, ah, so I, that's I the... think and she mainly serves to sort of pad out the first act um, and just give um, Detective Nata, who is in this version, is an Interpol cop. Was it uh, maybe someone a, to bounce uh, off of. You think it was was maybe uh, like a. A tax credit thing to have like certain number you gotta of have Canadian some number of Canadian well, speaking like, roles or something. Yeah, like I mentioned, they don't almost basically none of the key creatives or lead actors in this film are Canadian, except Ray Dong Chong. Uh, she is she is Canadian uh, and just pl- has a fairly small role in the beginning part of the movie. And uh, the woman who so we mentioned dubbing over um, actors and actresses in this film. So Julie Condra, who plays Emu O'Hara, who was one of the Emuhino ha- in the original yeah. source material. She, she was she is she is a uh, a race bent character. Obviously, this was a non-issue at at the time. Um, d- despite the fact that she looks strikingly similar to the character in the manga as well. Sure, like um, Ikigami's artwork is one of those things that people will look at and be like, you know, why do people look this way? It's like, look, he's he just draws. All right, yeah. get over it. What well, the, the yeah, two, she the looks two... very similar to the the artwork as um, i'm drawn that that was a a point i wanted to make actually they 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 look so similar like the two leads to the characters in the comic it's danger it's dangerously close to looking like some kind of some kind of cosplay skit um but guns and then you know the rest of the team they have such a keen eye for making things look good on film uh that it just kind of 
avoids that and again just looks like more of a, a it, it just adds to that again art house sheen to it and yeah. i think it kind of shows that there's a very fine line between a bad cosplay thing and something that looks very very art house like uh, that I think not a lot of people can navigate or make work. And also and has to does. do with the source material itself. Like, I think if there's a certain amount of abstraction in the original comic, attempting to mirror that in reality can either have, um, you know, it can backfire or it can go well for you. And in the case of Ikigami, like, there's so little, like, that you need to really change up. Like, it's not like they're, you don't really have to make, like, a big fantasy world set. You can just go to Vancouver or yeah. whatever. And yes. what I was getting at, Julie Condra, who plays Emma, Emu, Emu, first name not changed. <laughs> it's very strange for, for a Canadian woman to have the first name Emu. Um, she's the one who sees the Freeman kill a guy, and then uh, no, then herself is going to get murdered. And then he doesn't murder her, and that's sort of what what kicks off um, the, the the plot of this first arc. But her voice is dubbed over in this. They the the reasoning apparently was that her uh she is not it wasn't a deep her sexy voice wasn't voice. erotic enough yeah it wasn't erotic enough but the woman who dubbed over her voice who I forgot to write down um and I'm not sure it was even credited uh but she was a Canadian actress um so that that may have also fed into uh just trying to get those tax credits and, and funding yeah local too. uh British Columbia actress yeah because I remember I know that that's the case in like Australia is if you want those credits there, you have to hire, you know, X number of uh, Australian uh, talent, um, which I understand then. And so, yeah, that, that's why I thought maybe some of those people were there. I, I also, yeah, had no idea Ron Perlman had like a very small role in this it's movie. It's not a small role. I mean, he's playing the role of the lead, um, you know, antagonist uh, as a matter of yeah, course, just the Ch cop. Ch Chicky Cario plays... The, yeah, the cop, detect the, the the Interpol detective, um, yeah. but he is dubbed over. Uh, he's he, he, yeah, he's, because I guess that guy is super Quebecian or whatever. No, he's he's a French actor. He's been French. In, okay, he's been in lots of. He's from France and he's been in he's in like La Femme Nikita and and a bunch of other things. Um, but he ha he has quite a French accent and they didn't want that, so they had Ron Perlman, who is not Canadian, uh, dub over him. So a, a strange decision, I think, and it. When you know that he's I, been I dubbed remember, over, it's quite distracting. <laughs> but, I just remember being distracted when I saw him in this uh, movie that spiritually killed me, and I've been dead inside ever since. I'm talking, of course, of the live-action Wing Commander film, where he was playing the role of a guy who was supposed to be Scottish in the source material, and they did not dub him over. So he just became like this swarthy Frenchman instead. Um, but yeah, he's just uh, he's he's been constantly working. He's a character actor. He's just in all sorts of TV shows and films and whatever as some sort of usually shady guy. I mean, going on with the other few Canadian names, um, when you look at the writers for the film, some additional dialogue is credited to Laurie Finstead Kisnick. Um, I she as far as I can tell, she's just sort of a producer, and I think that her actual contributions were probably limited um and again was probably just a way to get that get that funding secured but interestingly one of the other uh writers who made contributions and apparently did dialogue rewrites was roger avery who i think 
very very important person very important person not only for being the co-writer of the pulp fiction script but he also recently declared on twitter that the konosuba movie uh was quite possibly the reason that cinema was invented and he also worked with gans on um he well you know he he wrote the script for the silent hill movie as well and interestingly it looks like he he was he was quite involved with the script here but he is not credited uh, which is weird because he is he is Canadian. So I thought that that would have been a, a, a also a way to sort of just just get another Canadian name in the credits. But yeah, he, he's generally associated with Tarantino as like a kind of guy who uh, sort of uh, bounces ideas off of him. Yeah, I think they have a, a show. I think they have like um like some little uh, thing that they do together. I just don't remember the details. But yeah, Roger Avery, uh, somewhat uh, infamous Noted Konosuba fan. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I know he went to the movie because he he loves his daughter and they they went to watch it together, which is adorable. But still, I, I just want to believe that he was there for Konosuba. But yeah, that's that was pretty neat. And uh, oh, uh, I I mean the the name that stuck out to me, who I recognized, was of course Mako. Um, yeah, he plays uh, the the yakuza boss yeah. or the father. He he speaks just enough that you'll know it's him. Uh, Mako is of course the the late voice of. Um, of Aku from Samurai Jack and Uncle Iroh from uh, Avatar, I think that's... Yeah, also and Master Conan Splinter, the and generally speaking, almost all of Mako's voice roles that we just talked about, he was in Ailing Health, and Phil Lamar had to actually do that voice for most of those roles we just discussed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's certainly in the movie. I was uh, always uh, getting a kick out of uh, Masaya Kato, who is playing um, the... Uh, rival Yakuza, who in this movie, like, uh, they, they kill him by, like, uh, they blow him up. But um, he was in this... Um, <laughs> he, he's really... He, he's hamming it up quite a bit in this yeah, movie, so which he, I, he I really... I found delightful. Awesome, awesome movie that I like. Also with Mark Dacascos, uh they made right after Crying Freeman called Drive, and I adore that movie Drive to death. Great. Um, yeah. and not, it's the, finally, not the recent one, yes. No, not the Ryan Gosling one. No, this, I'm talking this, about this the is a very different that, Drive. <laughs> Yeah, Steve Wang, Kuiji Sakamoto, and the uncut version is finally out there. Uh, but yeah, he's he was in a, a lot of things around this time in the in the 90s. He's uh, he's still around actually, but um, but yeah, I got a kick out of him being in it. Um, and then I think the lady they got um to be like the 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 boss Yakuza lady at the end. She was in like the James Clavell Shogun. Shogun, yeah, Yo- Yoko Shimada. Uh, she actually passed away just last year. Oh, um, but I, yeah, I, I thought she was great in this movie. She has, a, she has she a was very strong presence. The only, I guess, for for a for a Kazuo Koike movie, I guess she was the only one who was willing to to get naked to yeah. be frontally this. naked for the yes, film. Because and, uh, you know, all, as ridiculous as that whole scene was, that's exactly what happens in the comics, right down yes. to hearing the gunshot and then in the middle of coitus she draws a revolver or whatever right because uh the original like sex scene between what yo and uh and the, the painter lady was much longer and much more explicit yeah and, yeah certainly and... and a lot of the elements of like <laughs> oh neither of us have had sex before except you know in freeman's background he's like you know getting uh filleted as yeah. part of his uh training yeah they, I mean, that don't count <laughs> yeah they they downplay that part of it i know with emu's character in this they they lean into her her guilt over her parents getting killed which i kind of 
I don't think was a thing in the manga at all. Um, and they just sort of try to try to lean on that rather than the fact that she knows she's going to die and will will die a virgin. The, 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 the stigma of being the 30 year old virgin lady. Yeah. Well, please, before you kill me, can you, um, you know, give it to me so I can die a woman like that's not in this film. <laughs> yeah. no. The way it's in the uh, comic. <laughs> that's a, a wise decision, maybe that's a. Uh... Yeah, they, they cut back a lot on some of the, the very like lurid elements um, in this movie that or at least they what they filmed, they filmed a little bit more tastefully because uh even in the first volume, there is, you know, the blowjob while he's getting the tattoos and the many other lurid details that uh, either they didn't want to film or, you know, you have to pay a lot of money to to, to an actress to, you know, <laughs> get naked. So in terms of the the other actors in the film, I think the one we haven't touched on is Byron Mann, uh, who who plays uh Freeman's keeper with Co. I think was uh, the name. I can't. I can't remember the character's name. I didn't. Uh... Co. Yes. Co. Yeah. Um... Yeah. That, that's another change name from the original, and they sort of changed up what uh, he ended up doing yeah. in this. But you know, yeah. Basically, he's his friend. He's his handler in this film. Yeah. He and Byron Mann was very young uh, when he did this role. I don't think he. I was. He, I don't think it was he even twenty five. He looks young in this uh I, I i don't know if he quite sold the part for me personally but of being like a a wizened uh, assassin yeah. <laughs> considering the year before he played ryu in street fighter um that's a really uh, bad one yeah. the van yeah. damme street fighter the van damme yes remember it's pronounced ryu in that movie <laughs> <laughs> like ryu in this movie so um, Byron Man, but yes, um, I, I mean, he, I thought he was okay in yeah. this. Um, like, I guess he did the job. But it's, it's, there's a lot of people in this movie, so it's quite a quite a casting thing. Yeah, I, I've seen some people criticizing the cast of the film. I didn't really have any serious problems with it. I thought, I thought everyone was, uh, you know, if not good, serviceable for sure. It's pretty well balanced in that area overall. Um, I think one. One thing I, I wanted to highlight just about the, the background of the film, uh, I think, talk about the producer, Brian Usna. I mean, he, he is the architect of a lot of these yeah. live action anime things. Exactly. He was the producer of the Giver, like the one where there was the rapping in the yeah, Giver. He... That's, that's Brian <laughs> Usna. Yeah. I mean, uh, his, he has a background in direct-to-video horror schlock. Which yeah, that's like, where, that's uh, where Reanimator, he right? Yeah, that was re- him. Well, Reanimator was, was actually theat- was one of his few early theatrical films. I, I actually did not realize that Reanimator was in the theater. Yeah. And the it first was quite, one was, yeah. The first one was, and it was, that movie was popular in Japan. Uh, I know a while back on Twitter, something was making the rounds of the manga adaptation of Reanimator that was published in, in Halloween magazine in, uh, in Japan, which is of course a magazine targeted at middle school girls. Uh, who also happened to be the audience for most horror uh, in Japan. Oh my god, this, so... <laughs> this, this Brian Usna's, like, stuff he has worked on or produced is quite a thing. Yeah, but, re- but yeah like, the fact and... that he was, like, because again, we talked about this in the panel, but, you know, that rather terrible first Guyver movie, that was 1991, so he yeah. was at least aware of, like, the English language oh, well, manga 
things that were coming out. Well, here's here's the connection with reanimate when the after reanimator and it was popular in Japan for his next two movies, which is the sequel Bride of Reanimator, which was direct to video, um, and also Society, uh, which was um, this. It's not a good movie, but it has some like really crazy, disgusting uh, body horror effects at the end where you have this secret society of rich people who are actually uh, this like weird alien, weird alien creature. Um, So those were actually financed by a Japanese company in a two picture deal. Uh, And also Brian Houston has a seems to have a specialty in making movies that are popular in other countries, uh, not outside of the U S and Canada. Um, and that was the case with society, which was again, had better distribution in Europe and Japan than it did here. But when he was making those two movies, that financer hooked him up with a special effects artist who is a Japanese American who goes by screaming mad George. Um, he, he collaborated with him on the visual effects for that movie and screaming mad George was the guy who directed that first Giver film. And Yuzna was producer for that. And it was after that film that Yuzna was looking into adapt other manga titles. Like what other manga things yeah. are there? And that's how you get to Crying Freeman. That's crying Freeman, yeah. And But unfortunately, I, I think it, that if Crying Freeman had found an American distributor, uh, had actually been more of a hit here in the U.S. and Canada, there was apparently an intention to do – there was an intention to do more Crying Freeman movies. I can't imagine how those later arcs would have worked as oh live-action films. Jeez. Um, uh, but, <laughs> it would have been something all right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, obviously, like, you watch this movie, and there are certain decisions that you can see, like, this would not fly in the Hollywood. Like, yeah. you know, there are scenes where innocent bystanders are hit by bullets. Um, you know, there are scenes where, you know, just the, the, the way the acting is, like, some people would say it's cheesy or it's, like, you know, got that Canadian, you know, uh, stink to it. But, like, you know, that's a little hard pill to swallow. The stylized action, you know, like I said, to do Hong Kong style action in 1990, it's not fully Hong Kong style, but, you know, to do something that's even close to it. That's aware um, of it. Like yeah. back in 95? Like back in 94, uh, 95, they're, they're, they're that's they're a definitely, little too out there. They're trying to yeah. emulate that style of, of editing. In fact, I think I think one of the editors was a worked in a lot of Hong Kong action films. Um, and, and apparently Christoph Gans, he did the action choreography in this and he, you know, he, 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 he seems to be quite familiar with that, that style of, of shooting an action film and it, it shows in the end too. Yeah. It's definitely not when it comes time to do fights. Okay. We're going to do shots of just one person doing punches and kicks and then yeah. cut away to somebody getting hit. <laughs> and then, you know, that typical 1980s American, uh, action style. Yeah. Yeah. You can see what's going on. You can see who is what their spatial relationship is with each other, which is important to me. It's the, it's the difference between like, I don't know, the daredevil TV series and the iron fist TV series. So, or a very specific reference there. No, no, I thought the, the fights were, were, I mean, I thought the, the last fight was kind of ridiculous. Like there was a shot in that. And I'm I'm trying to remember, I believe it was Mark DeCasco's kick someone in the face, but the camera was in the wrong position. And so you can see that he missed his phase. Like, it's a very standard, like, you kick, like, next to their head, and then they'd react. Um, but the cam- but you normally, you, you, the camera's, like, behind the head, and some, somehow this got, like, in the wrong position. 
But I just noticed, but that was, you know, a small thing. Like, I'm sure they were on, like, a time crunch at that point. I'm sure it was time crunch. I'm sure, like, Mark and Christoph probably put that whole thing together kind of last minute. It's not like yeah. there was a, a comic equivalent scene. Like, that whole fight bit at the end wasn't in no. the uh, original comic. And so they're like, we need to have this thing end in on, on an action note. Yeah. Okay, let's put this thing together. And Mark's like, okay, well, I can do all these moves. And it's very clear... Like, there's no stunt double, really, for, no. you know, the Crying Freeman doing these flips and, you know, no, no, stabs like, and stuff like that. Dacascos did his own stunts, I understand. And, yeah, you could yeah. tell from even even today, like, you know, I would say the most high-profile thing he's done in recent memory was, like, you know, John Wick 3, he's the villain uh, that he fights yeah. at the end also, of that um, movie. Iron Chef America as well. Well, yeah, that's the way, but he doesn't have to fight people. He doesn't have to fight that, in that. That's probably the way yeah. people know <laughs> who he is, is certainly Iron Chef America. Well, not yeah. the thing that it they would be great if he with. did actually have kung fu battles with the loser of the Iron Chef America. <laughs> if they actually have to fight through him to get the ingredients, that would be yeah. Like if the secret mean. ingredient was corn, you'd have to actually like you know beat him down and defeat him and get the. No, <laughs> it was not that formal. Amazing. It would have been wonderful. D- just, no, in ca- I, I, just in case anyone thought that the chairman in Iron Chef was a real person, I'm sorry to shatter your your fantasy there. <laughs> but they don't live in a castle and. <laughs> Invite the world chefs there once a week on, to be filmed. I'm disappointed. Oh, uh, apparently, um, Julie Condra was the, uh, or her, at, at that point, at that time, DeCastle's wife. Um, she was the one who convinced him to to do that show. Oh, she convinced him to do Iron. Ch- oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that. Well, he was he was great, and I mean, there's not much I can think of that Mark DeCascos does that I I don't like. Like Mark right, DeCascos, like, even in bad movies, he's generally good the best in part the of movie. He, he's yeah. so charismatic. I think that being around him makes you want to try harder, and that's why his bits stand out. In like I said, otherwise bad movie. The, he was, a he was probably movie the best King. part of um uh, of the Saint Seiya movie. He had probably the best scene in that movie, and so, um, but yeah, no, I I love Mark DeCascos. I I mean, and this was like. A year after, like his big breakout, which was was it only the strong or the the, the one that introduced like was that the one that introduced like only Capoeira? the strong was Capoeira. That's nineteen ninety three, and certainly that's like still a super cheesy movie, but it's like it's a kids movie basically. But yeah, that's like the way that people saw, you know, here's Capoeira, everybody. That and Tekken three, right? Exactly. But no, I I guess if you want to see this movie, you have to. Uh, you have to go to the high seas for it, like I did. You have I to did. pirate it or import it. Those are your options, unfortunately. It, uh, you were very lucky to have streaming access to this film for even a short yeah. period of time. And yeah, it there's seemed, a lovely Blu-ray. Um, yeah. I guess I, that's a, what, Spanish Blu-ray or something? I think it, Germany and France. Maybe there was a Spanish one. I wouldn't be surprised if it got released in multiple countries in Europe. Spain. It had... Yeah, the one I'm looking at is a really nice Spain Blu-ray. Okay. I, I hope but, this gets a 4K Blu, uh, Blu-ray at some point. I think this would look fantastic. Uh, the version it, I well, watched, you know, completely legitimately, was a 4K version. So it's oh, something out there. If there, oh, maybe there is a 4K version out there. Well, if you could find that 4K version, I would I would advise checking it out. If there is a 4K Blu-ray out there somewhere, I I don't know if there is. But if there is, that would be region free. So. Uh, you could you could import that and play that on your very expensive 4K Blu-ray player or PS5. Yeah, it looks uh, like and, it's a German release. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the 4K, like you said, it's region free. It also includes a Blu-ray, but that is, um, I believe it's. That'd it be it re- probably would still be region A. I probably, mean, yeah, I, probably. Yeah, probably. Blu-rays was Blu-ray was I, I thought was like Japan America 
Europe was like one region or something. No, only no, one. like um, certain parts of Europe were region B. We share a region with Japan, though. Yeah. So okay. yeah, you'd be if you get that set, if that's out, if that's still out there, you can watch the 4K on a on a domestic U.S. or Canada player. But the regular 1080p Blu-ray uh, will not work. You have to get a a region-free player, and you can you can find them. They're out there. You can you can get a 4K player that has region-free um, Blu-ray as well. But you gotta you gotta pay a little more for that. You get to see the the lovely uh, fauna of of Hokkaido, which is very clearly the lovely uh, fauna of uh, of Vancouver. Of British It'll Columbia. be more obvious than ever in 4K. <laughs> yes, it's uh, like Vancouver looks absolutely beautiful, um, and sometimes it's just very, very obvious. N- not as bad as say um, Rumble in the Bronx, where he's he's fighting like in the Bronx, and then they they have like shots of like the beautiful mountains of New York, like in the background. But no, this is uh, definitely they did a good job. All right, well, that is pretty much everything I have to say uh, about this movie. Did you, uh, either of you have anything else you wanted to add about I mean, Crying Freeman really live action? I mean, we really about the plot of the film, which yeah. is fine. I don't think it's necessary to really go into the specifics of, like, oh, this is this, and then this happens, this happens. It's not really that important. I was just interested to see, like, from a specifically Canadian fan perspective, um, you know, how this affected people, who saw it, and where. And so that's kind of why we kind of came on here and which is uh it's cool because you know it's good to know learn something about the the film as far as yeah. you know it's geography and shooting locations and have you yeah um it, it's important like it's an important it has important connections to canada but unfortunately it's not a well-known movie in canada and that's why i, I wanted to do this episode was to sort of just sort of add it to that narrative and create more awareness of it it's set in vancouver and openly vancouver like yeah. that's Rare. It's really Very cool. Rare. And now now that we've talked about this, I realize I'm probably going to have to do an episode on that Netflix Death Note movie at some point, too. I mean, <laughs> that's a Canadian production as well, but I don't think it was uh, trying to say, hey, this is Canada. It was supposed to <laughs> no. be the United States. Very. And that's a much rougher. God, we I, uh, I had to watch that for our panel. A terrible, I did, I terrible put, film. I did not, not want to put Daryl through that. Poor, yeah. poor, sweet, gentle Daryl. We, Would not have survived it. Yeah, I, I did an episode on G Savior, of course, which was uh, filmed largely at my old university. That's certainly a Canadian <laughs> triumph. Um, what the most, and I pointed this out in that episode. What's interesting about G Savior is that, despite the fact that they outsourced the whole production to Vancouver, they didn't actually appear to use any tax credits on it, which almost defeats the entire purpose. Of I'm pretty money. sure that's perfectly on brand for the rationale of the G Savior project. Yeah, that they would make that sort of like really rudimentary mistake. There, the fact that there are people out there to this day who it's like we need 4K G Savior guys. It's canon, you know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what to what to gain from that, but I I, I might want to see some of those awful CG effects. So, um. Hey, the, hey, the CG know. was supposed to be the selling point of that whole movie. When you when you look at the credits, like for like the SF, the special effects company they used, front and center, first thing in the end credits. Oh my god! Well, all right, well, time time has shown. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, I think that wraps us up. Um, Daryl, Gerald, thank you so much for coming on. Um, can you let people know where? Our, our listeners can find you online or any conventions you might be appearing at 
in the near future or anything else you guys are up to? Well, sure. Just to get everyone uh, the plug in, we're the Anime World Order podcast over at AnimeWorldOrder.com. And we generally try to release an episode once a month, though, as you can tell, we oftentimes miss that. And we generally talk about um, things that aren't necessarily the most uh, brand new thing because we watch the whole show first. And so that invariably means that the thing that we're watching is oftentimes like uh, maybe a year or a couple of decades in the past. I also contribute to Otaku USA magazine, which you can get in print or in digital. And their website for that is otakuusamagazine.com. And for the moment, I'm still on social media at Twitter at Daryl Surratt. Somebody hook me up with a Blue Sky invite, please, because the site's going to be worse. I, I've got nothing for day. you, I'm afraid. <laughs> and yeah, um, so lately I've been sort of uh, hiding in a Discord hole. Uh, we've got a private Discord for our Patreon supporters. And we're going to be doing some uh, virtual sort of... Uh, Conventionish style events. We're going to do uh, extended edition of a panel we just did, which is sort of the reason why we were kind of on here, where we did, um, you know, the Western takes of uh, anime to live action film. Um, and so we had a lot of Crying Freeman in there that we just didn't show because it was, uh, you know, not suitable for the hour. But we are just going to show whatever we want uh, on Discord and hopefully not get uh, thrown off the platform. <laughs> Um, it's hey, it's not 18 plus. It's you know, TVMA, and so we'll do that. We also have uh, an event where we're going to go over the new upcoming anime season. Which by the time you hear this episode, it may have already happened. But hey, the good thing about anime is every three four months there's a whole new season of stuff to watch. And so uh, if you miss the first one, you can certainly catch us the next time. Uh, Gerald, how yeah, about you? I'm pretty much in all those same places. I'm on God. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Mastodon. I'm on Blue Sky. I am. Can we can we move off of Twitter, please? Please. Let's just. I don't care where we go. Just let's get off of Twitter. I write for Otaki USA. I uh, should have a new uh, an issue I contributed to coming out soon. Um, Anime World Order, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, the Discord. And I think that's where you'll find me. Yeah, I think we're all going to be at Otakon, too. I'm not actually sure. not sure about my yeah. status for any conventions this year. Uh, now that everyone is lifting their uh, mask and vaccine requirements and everything is more crowded than ever, I'm very paranoid about that stuff. I guess most everyone going are like, yeah, they already had COVID anyway, but I uh, have not. And so I uh, don't know if I'll be at those but i still uh would like to do uh some panel type stuff so i'll try and maybe do those like i said virtually either through the discord i've also got a twitch twitch.tv slash s-u-r-e-t-d where we may do those as well but the problem with twitch is that you can't have the uh video on demand if you do a panel type thing where you play video clips so you know we'll have to just uh go to the social media platforms and see like okay one would be the date and time for yeah. sort of live yeah, Otakon and Anime Week in Atlanta are normally what we go to. We're just not sure this year. It's tentative, maybe. Oh yeah, we we do want to try try to check out Anime North. Speaking of Canada, we've been wanting to go there for a couple of years. It's a great place to do panels. Well, some very some very good people uh, we know go there who are very good panelists. 
Anyway, thanks for tuning in to Zonen Canada. You can reach me, uh, I'm still on Twitter, at jbetteridge. If you have a Blue Sky invite, I would uh, love it if you reached out and, and let me know. Uh, you can also email zonencanada at gmail.com. Uh, the theme song is by Ultraclystron, and that can be found on his album Packet Flood. Uh, that's at ultraclystron.com. Uh, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, your podcast app of choice. If you can leave a review on Apple or any of those places, that'd be great too. Anyway, see you again.